Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of two specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the team come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? Uh, I'm okay. Um, people might not know, but we've been hounded by this person who wants to do the editing for us. Where are you going with this, Callum? And we really just need to get him off of us. Wow. We need to get him off of us. Him off, him off of us. <laughs> yes. Which is... What, what are we talking about today? Well, coincidentally, Callum, uh, we're talking about uh, the genus Haemophilus. Oh, okay. Well done. What What was your pun for the... Should, we, should I throw it to you? James, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. I, was, um, I had to put down my dog because my neighbour Phyllis uh, was in the back garden and uh, he mauled for us. <laughs> Oh no. I feel that mine's worse. It's just snappier. Yeah. Is Phyllis okay? Uh, well, after that, she came down with a bad uh, course of influenza. What a coincidence, Callum, because uh, today we're talking about Haemophilus influenzae and related organisms. Um, I thought we could segue that into actually, we're not talking about Haemophilus at all. We're talking about Capnocytophagia. Oh, if only. But no, Capnocytophagia is a long way away. Okay. I'm afraid to say. Um, incidentally, just to start with this, uh, do you know why Haemophilus influenza is called Haemophilus influenza without looking at the show notes? From memory, I think I thought it was that they thought it caused influenza. Is that right? Yeah, they did. They did. So it was it was initially called Bacillus influenzae because apparently everything was called Bacillus back in the day. Makes sense. Um, or Pfeiffer's Bacillus. And uh, the reason why is because in 1892, it was first described by a guy called Richard Pfeiffer during an influenza pandemic. And he thought Haemophilus influenza was a causative microbe because this was sort of before we knew about viruses, presumably. And then it just retains influenza in its name because of that. Hmm. It's funny how many organisms are named after some historical microbiologist's incorrect assumption of the disease that it caused. Yeah, well, I guess you have to start somewhere for name, don't you? I suppose you do. So we're going to talk through, we're going back to our more traditional format. So we're talking about the different species of Haemophilus, site of infection, what clinical syndromes it causes, risk factors, pathogenic mechanisms, lab ID, and how to treat it. Mm. Callum, take me through the different species of uh, Haemophilus. Right, well, here we go on a journey into Haemophilus species. You find yourself on a, no, 25 species there are, and of those associated with humans, so there's some that aren't associated with human infection, uh, you can group them into which growth factors they need. So one of the typical things of Haemophilus is that they need uh, supplements to grow on a blood agar plate. So X and V... So the most important one is Haemophilus influenzae of influenza fame. There's also Aegyptius and Haemolyticus. Uh, those that need V or X and V is Parainfluenzae, Pitmaniae, 
parafrohemolyticus or sputorum doesn't need X or X and V is ducrii, although that might be reclassified later. And in others are semenalis and parahemolyticus. And we'll, when we talk about lab ID, we'll come into a bit more about what all this X and V stuff means. But yeah, for now, yeah. that's that's how you divide them up quite quickly. Fine. Where are they found? They are found in the upper respiratory tract. Done. Um, what, <laughs> yeah. what could they cause? They can cause lower respiratory tract infections. So in the upper respiratory tract, and they send, you know, people will have different species of homophilus, and then you may be exposed to another species and, and pick it up, homophilus influenzae, and it could go down and cause a lower respiratory tract infection. So they, it's one of those organisms where it can be a normal part of your flora and sitting around not causing any harm, and then you may be exposed to a different uh, strain or or serovar or something, and that that can cause infection. Mm, yeah, uh, and it can become more invasive as well. So, Haemophilus historically was a really important cause of invasive infection, bloodstream infection, and meningitis was very common. But thankfully, now we've got extensive Haemophilus influenzae vaccination programs uh, that has dramatically reduced the rates of bloodstream infection and meningitis. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about them at the end. Yep. And then the other things that can cause, so not influenzae, but mufflus ducrii can cause something called chancroid, and then endocarditis, which can be influenzae, but uh, some of the other species as well. Mm. But most commonly influenzae, the, the, yep. which is the type species as well, by the way. So in terms of hemophilus influenza, that's the main main organism. And we're going to sort of chat about it in a little bit more detail now, and then we'll give an overview of what the, the rest of the species can cause. Who's at risk of getting haemophilus influenza or haemophilus infection at all, Callum? Firstly, everyone's at risk. And then those at increased risk are those who are under five or over 65. Patients who have either complete or functionally splenia because it's an encapsulated organism. So it sits there with our meningococcus pneumococcus. Patients with so sickle cell disease. It's related to impaired clearance. Um, so they're not functionally splenic, but because they're pulling uh, so many diseased red cells out, it's almost like the spleen doesn't have time for the haemophilus. That's the way right. I've always thought about it, at least. Oncology patients? What does that mean? People on chemotherapy? Means people with cancer, Callum. With cancer. Uh, HIV, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, and those of complement deficiency. Uh, so a couple of risk factors. I think asplenia is probably the most important one. In our yeah, but really it's, it's, it's age extremes and anything that would impair your ability to clear the haemophilus bug out of the bloodstream. Uh, and so that typically means stuff which targets the, the capsule, such as having an organ full of macrophages constantly filtering the blood. Or you've got, um, uh, you know, neutropenia uh, uh, because of chemotherapy or whatever cancer treatment you're on, that things, or immunodeficiency. So, yeah, so let's let's talk about haemophilus influenza first, and then we'll circle back to the other organisms. It's by far the most important one of this, of this group. A little bit about classification first, because it kind of perf- kind of follows on to the kinds of diseases that uh, haemophilus influenza can cause. So there are capsulated and non 
uh, encapsulated flavors of, of Haemophilus influenzae. And they are typed A, B, C, D, E, and F. And the it's the polysaccharide capsule, so it's a carbohydrate capsule, and it's around the cell wall of the organism. And these are kind of sources of, you know, of kind of virulence. And you've also got non-typable or non-encapsulated strains, and they cause different kinds of disease, typically milder disease. Incidentally, there is also a biotyping scheme, which the SMI for Haemophilus mentions only in passing, and therefore I did not learn, and presumably you, loyal listener, do also not need to learn. Uh, but there are uh, one to eight different biotypes, and it depends on how the individual organism processes UDAs, indole, and ornithine decarboxylase, about which I know nothing at all. Callum, anything to add there? Nope. Good. Uh, so Haemophilus influenza B, like Callum said, was a you know, very common cause of meningitis before it was introduced into the vaccination program. And it's still an issue in some parts of the world where it's not part of the pediatric vaccine program. But it's uncommon, certainly in the UK. It was mostly children under the age of five. The mortality was about five to 10%, uh, depending on your sources. Other diseases are bactremia, obviously, uh, generally biotypes one and two, uh, of Haemophilus influenza, although as previously stated, I know nothing more about the biotyping. And then stuff related to the upper respiratory tract, so epiglottitis, but also orbital cellulitis. Mm. It's in the upper respiratory tract and it's moved somewhere it's not meant to be, but local. That's how I think about it, at least. Yeah, I think epigl- epiglottitis in particular was a disease of Haemophilus influenza type B. So, uh. you know, if you read a lot of textbooks, they talk about epiglottitis and now, when you see it present, it's, it's rare. Mm. And yeah, with like sort of Staph aureus and other organisms. But. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the typing has shifted really, or the, the causative organisms have shifted yeah. a, a lot, and it's less common, thank God. Yeah. Uh, and then other things that they can cause, meningitis, bactremia, endocarditis, as previously stated, but also things like septic arthritis and uncommonly skin and soft tissue infection. Contrasting that with the non-typable or non-encapsulated Haemophilus influenzae, they cause much milder disease and generally in parts of the body related to the upper respiratory tract. So things like titus media, sinusitis, tracheobronchitis, kind of upper respiratory tract things, they can occasionally descend to cause pneumonia and rarely they can cause invasive disease, presumably in an immunocompromised patient but they are overall the kind of flavor of diseases that they can cause. It's much milder. Mm. Let's jump up to the top Callum and uh, mention the mimics of Haemophilus influenzae. Uh, so why don't you tell us about Haemolyticus and Aegyptius? Haemolyticus and Aegyptius are other species of Haemophilus that can mimic influenzae. And Haemolyticus in particular is generally speaking an upper respiratory tract commensal. It can rarely cause invasive disease, but generally speaking, it's something that you don't don't bother identifying in the lab. Uh, it's quite different. And Aegyptus is similarly an organism that you want to differentiate from influenzae in lab, but doesn't tend to cause clinical disease. 
And then next we've got the parainfluenza, which is sort of the other kind of big hitter. Again, it's commonly found in cases of otitis media and sinusitis and is notable for being cultured from the sputum of chronic bronchitis or COPD patients. But uh, that's about it, really. Yeah, I, you see it pop up in respiratory samples quite a lot, and I think we generally dismiss it as not that important. Yeah, in terms of virulence, they're, they're much less likely to be the trouble. Uh, luckily enough, they're usually caused by standard therapies for, yeah. uh, for COPD, aren't they? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and then uh, in terms of other things, you've got paraphrohemolyticus, which again is found in the upper respiratory tract, can be cultured from sputum and urethral discharge. Um, of the significance of that is, is kind of uncertain. Uh, there's pitmanii, which is a mouth commensal, which rarely causes opportunistic infections. And there's sputorum, which was cultured from sputum, has been cultured from blood in the past, but really there's not. this is very small fry at the moment. Hmm. What about Ducree? Yeah, Ducree is interesting because it causes a very different infection. It causes something, so morphous Ducree or Ducree. Yeah. Who knows? It causes a chancroid, which is a um, sexually transmitted infection, which results in quite a, a painful ulcer. So if you contrast that to a chancre, which is primary syphilis lesion, which is a painless ulcer, and we know that the word ends in oid, so it means like. So chancroid is sort of like a chancre. So that's how you can remember it causes an ulcer. And then also causes like quite marked inguinal lymphadenopathy. Mm. Uh, and then if you if you have it um, at different sites, so if you like sort of rectal infection, then it could cause a different presentation. Sure. Uh, it can also cause skin infections more generally. And then the last sort of three that we've not mentioned so far are parahemolyticus, which can cause pharyngitis and, and rarely subacute bacterial endocarditis. And then Massiliensis, which has been cultured from peritoneal fluid. And Seminalis, do you want to guess where that's been cultured from, Callum? Semen. Yeah. And that's the only thing that the SMI said about it. So I guess it can't be that important, but that is fun to know. Shall we enter micro mode? Micro, micro mode engaged. engaged. We need to figure out a song for that. Uh, people like the uh, shanty. Shanty. Yeah, you need to come up with one. Mm. Let's see what I can do. Yeah, why don't you tell me how to identify these things in the lab then, Callum? The Haemophilus species, they're facultatively anaerobic. They are non-spore forming and non-motile. They uh, they grow on blood for 24 or 48 hours, but they need speci- some of them will need specific growth factors in order to grow on blood. And some of them need specific air conditions as well. So CO2 is needed for Haemophilus ducreae and also non-type some of the non-typable Haemophilus influenzae. But generally speaking, they'll grow pretty well on chocolate agar so most of the time if you're looking for morphless you're going to look on a chocolate blood agar which is basically where the blood's been split so that those nice nutrients that the morphless species need are released from the blood yeah the colonies are generally small they're round they're convex and they're colorless to gray some of them can be uh, uh, exhibit hemolysis uh, so hemophilus hemolyticus it's in the name can be beta hemolytic and pitmania can also be BG hemolytic. The other ones generally aren't. Mm. And on microscopy, they're sort of defined as cocobacilli, 
or there can be more ovals, so there can be more um, bacillus formed. But in general speaking, they're, they're pleomorphic, so they can have lots of different shapes or they can have filament formation. So when I have seen Haemophilus, particularly on a like a bud culture gram or on a you know, direct from clinical specimen, what you sometimes get back from the biomedical scientists is there's lots of different shapes. It's hard to pin down. And people are always a bit reluctant to just say, I think it's this specific organism because, you know, that's quite a big call to make. But when you read back the, what they've written and then you get the ID back from Morphelus influenzae or whatnot, it's like, oh, that does make sense. Um, like clearly yeah. they were thinking that, but they just wouldn't commit to it because, <laughs> um, it's, you know, microscopy is difficult. Oh, yes, no, just... The other thing is, I guess for ID, so you grow it on the plate, maybe you get on any cho- chocolate uh, agar. You then put it in the Molotov, and it's very good for differentiating uh, homophilus species. So it works very well. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, most of the identification is now is now done with Maldi, particularly from sterile sites where you don't have to worry about you know like poor uh, or mixed colonies or things like that. And, and in particular, Haemophilus influenzae and Haemophilus hemolyticus, which otherwise are pretty hard to tell apart, the Molotov can do a pretty good job of of doing that. Yeah, I feel like we're slightly sad every time we say, like, I mean, just the idea with the Molditov. Don't get us wrong, it's brilliant. Like, listen to the Molditov episode. We're big fans. True, but I, I, I do think that for this organism, you because this is likely to turn up in an exam because it's an easy question to set, you do need to know a little bit about how to ID this, mm-hmm. you know, the, in, the, in the if the Moldy breaks yeah. uh, scenario. And so let's... The, the other ways that you can identify with Haemophilus influenzae with capsule typing is with antecedent and you can do a PCR, which, which kind of looks at the capsule operon and sort of says, you know, is it one, two, three, A, B, C, D, E, F, or, or non. But let's now talk about X and V tests. So we X talked about X and V factors. Yeah, X factor. That Haemophilus need, yeah. Um, and then... We didn't really explain them in detail, so let's do that now. Yeah, so they're both, they're called X and V, and we use them in the lab to ID, but they are like basic parts of the cell, like they're they're constituent, like useful things that, that blood cells will use. The X factor is human, and the V factor is NAD, which is... Nicotine adenine dinucleotide. Thank you. And that is like a, you know, your NADP cycle and energy. So it's an you know, intrinsic and very useful part of the cell. Um, and so V factor is NAD and X factor is human. And the Haemophilus, like some species need one, but not the other. And some need both and some need none. And so you can use that to get a pretty close to how, to, to the species identification and probably close enough to be, to be honest with you, but it doesn't really make much of a difference. Isn't that right, Cal? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, so like to, uh, to take an example, so I've got a table here in the in the in the prep notes, which is sort of color coded according to to which, and Haemophilus influenzae needs both X and V. So if you incubate it just with X and just with V, and what we're doing here is we've we've got an agar plate and we're putting three discs on, one of which has only X factor, one of which has only V factor, and another one of which has both, and if the Haemophilus doesn't grow next to the X or the V factor, but grows just fine next to the X plus V, it's presumptively diagnosed as Haemophilus influenzae, but could also be Haemophilus hemolyticus, 
and Haemophilus aegyptius. So they're they're both X plus V mm. uh, dependent, and they're all the the other differentiator test that we sometimes use is porphyrin testing, and they're all porphyrin test negative too. So there's there's literally no way to tell between them. Contrast that if you like with Ducreyi, which is X factor. It will grow around X factor and X plus V, but doesn't grow around V factor. Mm. So it it needs X is is what I'm saying, yeah. and that that's the only one. Of that, so if you if you've got a, that that's a common exam, or maybe it may be more of a part two thing, but you know you've got an agar plate and it's got something that's growing around the x and the x plus v disc, but not the v plate, and they say to you, what is it? The differential is not wide; it's only Haemophilus decreyi, and it's because it's not really a Haemophilus. They might reclassify it as something else later on. Um, it doesn't really cause the rest of the diseases that the other Haemophilus species do. It's really just chancroid and a couple of other things. So I think they might be justified in moving it out, to be honest with you. But for now, it's in the species, in, in the genus. And for now, for an exam question, it's really low-hanging fruit. So that's kind of worth knowing. And then stuff that will grow around the V and the X and V, but not the X, so the, kind of the opposite of, of decree is Haemophilus parainfluenzae, but also Paraphrohemolyticus and Pitmanii, which are really small print uh, and really not important. Parainfluenzae is barely important, and Paraphrohemolyticus and Pitmanii are less important still, and Haemophilus sputorum as well. And then there's a few which there was no statement on the X and V factor in the UK SMI, which means that you don't need to know about it. Mm. And those were Massiliensis, Parahemolyticus, and Seminalis. Uh, again, very small friend. They're very cheap tests to do, as the other things. So if it's a non-sterile sample, so do we still do it for respiratory specimens? You do in some labs. So yeah. um, certainly in the uh, one of the satellite labs in, in Nados Royal Infirmary North, they still do haemophilus plates with X and V and XV. Might yeah. not now because they've got Maldi top. So. They may not if they've got Maldi. I'm out of, um, out of touch now, aren't I? But then... Also, there are ways to differentiate the various Haemophilus species with urease, catalase, and oxidase. And this is in the SMI too, but I do not think that this is something that you need to, to know about. For I mean, for one, almost everything is urease positive, and just about everything is catalase positive as well. So Ducreyi yeah. isn't. And it doesn't help you differentiate Haemophilus influenzae from Haemolyticus. No, and Aegypticus, because they're they're all... Again, they're all sort of the same, influenza, hemolyticus, and aegypticus. Ducree is catalase and octase negative, and that's very dissimilar to the rest of the uh, of the species. But again, Ducree is not really a proper haemophilus. Yeah. It's probably going to get downgraded uh, in short order. And so I'm not okay. sure that this is really worth your time remembering it, frankly. I, I guess like if you want to differentiate influenza from hemolyticus, the only thing that's standing up for me there is that hemolyticus might have beta hemolysis. Yeah, but even that is some. Um, yeah. As opposed to pitmanii, which doesn't mention if there's hemolytic in the species name, but is always beta hemolytic, which is quite annoying. So yeah, you can't <laughs> even rely on that. If you culture H. influenzae from a sterile site, though, they're all sent to Public Health England Collendale, yeah. uh, which is the big reference lab in the UK for typing further typing so you'll get a confirmation if you grow it from somewhere sterile 
that's good. And that that's true in Scotland as well as the uh, as England as well, isn't it, Callum? Yeah. So I think that's pretty much all to talk about for for Lab ID. Good. Are we entering let's kill him mode? Treatment. Do you want to take this? Yeah, right. I'll take the beginning of it and then you can jump in because it's antibiotics and I don't think I'll be able to hold you off for long. So um, there's UCAS. So the UCAS have breakpoints for Chemophilus and Flunzy and we can check them against penicillins. And essentially, if they're below the, the breakpoints and they're sensitive, then we can say that they're sensitive to all beta-lactams. If they're resistant, then the mechanism resistant can either be a PBP-free, penicillin-binding-protein-free mutation or a beta-lactamase. And so at that point, they recommend that you test further to look to see if they've got a beta-lactamase. And so often when you look at reports, it will say Haemophilus influenzae, this is a beta-lactamase producing organism, this isn't. So it's one of those exceptions to where we actually do look to see if it's got to be the lactamase. So how how do we tell if it's beta lactamase positive or not? And like what how do you decide what to report as sensitive? Well, uh, UCAS have actually quite a nice uh, flowchart uh, in their uh, breakpoint tables uh, section on Haemophilus influenzae of how to sort of check for penicillin. So the first thing you do is set it up with the penicillin screening. And if you've got a zone of inhibition of greater than 12 millimeters, then it's it's sensitive to all penicillins and you just report it, report it as. If it's less than 12 millimeters, then you've got an inhibition mechanism, be it PVP3 mutations or beta-lactamase, and you then set it up against a colmoxiclav disc. And then if you if you set it up against colmox and it's no different to the penicillin, then you assume it's PVP3. If the, there is some inhibition with the Colmox-Clav disc, then you can assume that there is a beta-lactamase there, and then you interpret whether or not PBP3 is also there according to how big the zone of inhibition is. So if it's less than 50 millimeters, you would assume that both are present. And if it's more than 50 millimeters, you would assume that it's only beta-lactamase, which you've then inhibited with the clavulanic acid. So that's how UCAS recommends that you you do it. Okay. Oh, there's one other thing to say about if you if you're going to use colmoxiclav to kill this thing. So say you do have a beta-lactamase producing Haemophilus influenzae and you want to use colmox, you have to use what UCAS term determine the higher dosage, which is 875 milligrams of amoxicillin to 125 milligrams of clavulanic acid. Now, obviously, we don't have that in the UK. We've got 625s, which are 125 of clavulanate, but only 500 of, of amoxicillin. So they're available in other countries, including Australia, where I, I did some work. Callum, I don't know if I've mentioned that before. But how you can get around this in the UK is by doubling up the amoxicillin. So you, uh, you boost it by giving a second amoxicillin 500 milligram capsule with every dosing. So that way they're getting a gram of amox with 125 of clavulanic acid. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of indications for colmoxiclav where UCAS are recommending that dosing regime now. Yeah. It continually confuses people when I advise it. And then they say, huh? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've used it just the other day, actually. And it was, it was a bit of a, an edge case, but it was a palliative care patient who didn't want any IV therapy. 
but had an enterococcus faecalis bloodstream infection. And, uh, you know, it was either that or, or linezlid. There, there were other reasons to want polymicrobial cover. Uh, and so what I elected for was, was boosted comoxiclav. So I, I gave, told them to give a, a 65 plus a 500 of a mox uh, three times a day and see how she was in, in sort of three days time. And she did okay. Um, I mean, the, the infection was the least of our concerns, let me tell you that. So I, that's that's how I approach it as well. Is there any reason not to just say, let's just give them two, you know, two 625 milligram comoxiclavs and then they'll get 250 milligrams of clavulonic acid? Well, I, I guess the, the reason is, I mean, A, uh, you would get a few, earn a few raised eyebrows in your microbiology and infectious disease community, which I guess you have to take into account what standard practice is. But the, the main reason that I can think of is that quite a lot of the side effects of Comox are related to the calabalanic acid. So LFT derangement, nausea in particular, can be quite commonly put down to the calabalanate. And uh, the way to figure out is to ask the patient, have you had amoxicillin before? And if so, did it make you nauseous? And a lot of the time they'll say no. Because generally speaking, if they've been nauseous with amoxicillin, they won't be offered Comoxiclav unless the team just hasn't, you know, taken a proper allergy history. Or they have, and they've said they're not allergic. Or they've said, yeah. Um, but if, you, if you've if you get nausea with amoxicillin, you would be unlikely to be put on Comoxiclav if there was an alternative, let's say. Okay. But yeah, so the 250 of clavulanic acid, I mean, if you think about it, it's not that far off the 200 milligrams of clavulanic acid they're getting when you give IV Comox. But my tendency would be to give the 125 plus 500. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't quite appreciated that the side effects from would be from the clavulanic acid. So well, that there's also sense. no additional benefit. So you don't need that much clavulanate to... Yeah, I, get, mainly I was just coming at it from the angle of it'd be easier to prescribe and easier, e- easier, easier for the patient as well because then you just have to take two tablets from the same pack. You know, like three times a day antibiotics compliance at home, and you know people getting confused. I mean, what we really need is the eight seven five one two five formulation of yeah. Comoxiclav in the UK. Let's do it. Um, but yeah, uh, is anybody uh, listening? Uh, and that's within your gift to organise. Let's do it. Uh, in terms of other things that you can use, Callum, for, for killing? Yeah, for killing hemophilus, um, so cephalosporins, but not first-generation cephalosporins. Carbapenems, um, meropenem in particular is, is useful for meningitis, but not the other carbapenems. Mm. Quinolones, so the, you have to be careful because they can quite easily develop resistance as a low break point. Uh, so for ciprofloxin, it's 0.06 mm. uh, milligrams per litre, so you know, you quite often see quinolone resistance. Macrolides. So I think we have an interpretive report which says that there's some controversy about the activity of macrolides against hemophilus in our reports. Yeah, well, the, uh, UCAS have recommended against using it. And in fact, they don't issue any breakpoints for macrolides anymore. What they do say is that if you are going to use them, you should relate it to the, to the ECOFs, the environmental cutoff values, which are difficult for me to explain because i don't fully understand them uh, yeah Callum, we explained we it can... well maybe you can put because we talked about it on the episode of febrile that we were on oh, we have we taken we? any trips to podcast towers lately have we Callum? yes lofty towers and uh so i've hopefully explained it there 
I, you did very well. But yeah, we were guests on the Febrile podcast. It was released last week at the time of recordings, the, the back half of August. Whenever this um, episode goes out. Because... Whenever this episode goes out. But yeah, uh, please do uh, check it out and check out the Febrile podcast uh, in general because it's just superb, uh, superb work. Uh, as an ID podcast, I feel we are living in the shadow of the great Sarah Dong. So for ECOFs, it's the sort of... In- the wild type population, the MIC yeah. that would kill most, but not all of them. Yeah, you basically choose, you know, that a wild type, so basically the bacteria in the wild that don't have any acquired or uh, intrinsic resistance mechanisms, you look at all of those and see what the, what the MIC for those organisms are for each antibiotic. And yeah. then put that into at, a graph. At which you would sort of kill most of them. Yeah. And then you look at those which you know have resistance mechanisms and put them into a graph. And then what you get is two sort of bell, bell-shaped bell plots almost. And then you find the line between the two of them. And you, that's the ECOF is where it is more likely that it's, you're looking at an organism of resistance than you are looking at a wild type. But mm. there's just, it's just it's, you know, there's a set point. And wherever you put that point, it, you know, there'll be some things that you call resistant which are wild type and probably would be effective clinically and there'll be some things that are resistant that it won't be effective and you're call sensitive yeah and then just just to round off the other things that we can use you can use tetracyclines cotramoxazole uh, works a lot of the time and chloramphenicol uh, as well yeah it's a tricky thing when when you've got a patient who's got a hemophilus infection and they've got a penicillin allergy quite quickly run out of treatment options it can be quite a difficult clinical situation particularly with the problems of macrolides i'd say yes Uh, i did find a study of copd patients uh hemophilus influenza cultured from sputum of copd patients about two-thirds of them were amoxicillin resistant of whom 50 percent had a beta-lactamase and about half of them were macrolide resistant according to the to the old criteria so amoxicillin in itself and macrolides are sort of unlikely to be effective. And, you know, because haemophilus is, you know, kind of common in COPD patients, certainly more than in non-COPD people coming with pneumonias, I think it's a fairly solid reason for using, like in, in, in favor of using doxycycline as your empirical therapy for for mm. infective COPD exacerbations that you think are bacterial, which should be a small proportion of the COPD exacerbations that you're seeing and treating. It's quite a lot, yeah. So that means a third of hemophilus in COPD patients will have a beta-lactamase because it was half of 66%. No, uh, it, no it's, it's 50% solid. Oh, okay. So 50%. Yeah, 16% presumably had a PPP. Yeah. I see, I see. But yeah, so that's quite a lot. And do we have data on doxycycline resistance rates, or is that not uh, not from that study? No. Okay. Because it, you know, it feels like practices change a lot now. Like most places are using doxycycline. Certainly, we're using it a lot for for COPD, hospital acquired pneumonia. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a general move away from macrolides and an increased recognition of toxicity with glyphromycin, cardiac toxicity, drug interactions. So, Yeah, I mean, in, in Australia, they think we're all crazy for using clarithromycin as our standard. Yeah. Um, they, it was as if we were looking at another country that was using erythromycin 
and all their patients were getting like GI side effects. Yeah. They think they were nuts. Well, the Aussies think that we are nuts for using Clary because of this QT prolongation issue. And they, they use azithromycin as their default. It's once a day as well. And it's not like it's expensive. Yeah, I guess the main downside for Zephyr in my head is it's got this really long tail period. So are you, you know, as we've seen in the um, STI um, section, we use a lot of azithromycin and you end up with lots of resistance. Well, you do, but I mean, is that that just a feature of the the kind of dosing that was being used in those STIs? Usually there mm-hmm. were one-offs and, you know, initially the doses were quite low. Like now, if you recommend them tall, it's like a gram stat, and, you know, that's that's a big meaty dose. Yeah, that's true, I guess. I, d- you know, I don't the, know. The, the same concern that. has been raised about, um, what's the long acting? Uh, Dalbavankin. Dalbavankin. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dalbavankin. Um, so like the people are thinking, will this just teach all the enterococci in your gut to be VREs? And, you know, people are worried about it, but I've seen no real world data um, to suggest that that's the case. Yeah, I guess because it's such a large molecule, will not stay in the, in the bloodstream and the, the extracellular space is less likely to cross into gut. I mean, the hope would be that, but I mean, you get vancomycin is a big molecule that stays in the... Uh, intravascular space and you still get vancomycin resistant enterococci. Cam, do you want to say anything about um, the vaccines? Uh, the vaccines are great. Well done. Whoever invented them, really happy. Uh, so it's been part of the UK routine schedule, the Hemophila Influenza B uh, vaccine. It's very effective given young children and also it's given for those who have increased risk. So people who develop a splenia or splenic dysfunction, those who are diagnosed with complement um, deficiency as well. Mm. So it's, you know, something that's important to to think about in risk areas. Yeah, it's been part of the UK schedule from 1992. So that's when everybody will have been vaccinated for it. Uh, And importantly, it's only for capsule type B. There's no cross protection from other uh, capsulated strains or non-typable haemophilus influenzae. So you'll still be susceptible infection from those things, but it's really, it was rolled in there as a meningitis prevention mechanism. And as far as that goes, it's been blisteringly effective. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some data. So prior to the introduction of the Hib uh, immunization and estimated annual incidence of invasive Hib disease so this is like, you know, when it's become very serious, not let alone just low level infection, it was 34 per 100,000 children under five years of age. Or to put that in another context, one in every 600 children developed some form of invasive hip disease before their fifth birthday. So, you know, that's a huge burden of disease. And after, uh, in 1998, which is a couple of years after it had been uh, started, the instance was 0.65 per 100,000. Huge, dramatic falls fell from by over 95%. Yeah, vaccines are the best. A lot. Yeah, I think I think we're, we're in a society where all these childhood infections and your your siblings or, or your children dying in childhood from now vaccine-preventable illnesses is gone, like diphtheria, ophthalmic influenza, B, you know, tetanus, all the polio. You know, it's huge. What a time to be alive. We've got vaccines coming out of our ears. Oh, okay. Maybe I'll just give you a sec to think about next week. Oh, <laughs> I didn't see it coming. That's the problem. 
questions, comments, suggestions, send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Got a five-star review in your pocket? Why don't you put it in your podcast player of choice? Uh, if you want to reach us on Twitter, Callum? God, um, idiots. You can do this. Under score. Yeah. Pod. Okay. That's great. idiots underscore pod. Very good. I don't know uh, why I in- struggle with that so much. <laughs> uh, but until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Bye. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.